0: This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid Missouri's only in depth weekly art show. Recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. several weeks of only ghost-lit stages. This weekend there is a pandemic defiance of riches on local stages. Of course I say pandemic defiance with tongue-in-cheek as in Colombia at least our theatres require masks at all times and encourage social distancing. So this week our arts tour is a dive back into the world of stages and footlights with a look at what is coming up this season at Arrow Rock's Lyceum Theatre a peek behind the scenes of Eugene Ionesco's anti-play, The Bald Soprano at Stevens, and a check-in with the director of The Smell of the Kill, which opens at Talking Horse Productions next week. Plus, we have a chat with the author and illustrator of a soon-to-be-released children's book called The Indigenous Goat. We'll start tonight in Ararock. I am endlessly amazed and delighted that in a tiny town surrounded by the fields and farms of mid-Missouri, there is a 416-seat theatre that every year attracts professional actors from across the country to perform Broadway-caliber shows, which in a regular non-pandemic year are seen by around 33,000 people. The Lyceum Theatre in Arrowrock is a phenomenon and one which has been artistically shaped for the past 17 seasons by Queen. Gresham, the theatre's producing, artistic director and a somewhat regular guest on the show. Quinn, welcome back. A delight, as always, to chat theatre with you for a little while.
1: I'm thrilled to be with you and so nice to be a somewhat regular guest.
0: (laughs) Is the Lyceum a phenomenon to you too? Was it always thus or have you sprinkled your own Quinn Gresham magic over it for the past 18 years?
1: Well, I don't know that I'll get into whatever my own magic might be, because I certainly can't identify it, nor do I even really think it exists. (laughs) Uh, But when I first came out here as an actor, I had just graduated from the Conservatory of Theater Arts at Webster University, and I had no idea where I was going. In fact, I drove past Arrow Rock and ended up in Boonville, I believe. Um, It just didn't seem like this was a place that could accommodate the theater as I understood it. And to this day, I marvel that the theater exists where it exists. It is truly a one of a kind institution. And we are just stacked on so many shoulders of people that saw the potential in this tiny historic village and had such a belief in the power of the arts to uh, communicate that they kept going. I mean, for decades before I'd ever even appeared on a stage anywhere, uh, this theater was was on its way. And it's tremendous to see how across the state, we have developed uh, friendships with audience members. And people often ask me what what specifically is the magic of the lyceum or the the what is the arrow rock magic and and I don't know that I have a specific answer I have lots of feelings but I can never seem to distill those into words but I think for many people that experience the theater here whether they are creating it or attending it there is something chemical physical biological that occurs <laughs> uh, when you pull off highway 41 into arrow rock it is a uh a calm place, it is a, a very connected and human place, and it is a place where everyone is welcome and that, that really is just plain and simply the truth. And, and that is a powerful experience, I think for anybody that discovers it.
0: I don't have a sense of whether there are lots of Lyceums sprinkled around the country in small towns, or whether the Lyceum that in Ararok is really a unique proposition.
1: There was a Lyceum movement in the early. Nineteen hundreds, and I don't know much about it except to say that there are lyceums around the world. There's a lyceum theater in London. There's a lyceum theater in New York City. There are plenty of lyceums. We, we're not a part of a, uh, a a larger fraternity of other organizations. Uh, we are our own thing, but we do share that name, uh, which harkens back to the days of Aristotle. The lyceum being a, a gathering place where ideas are shared uh, and. Uh, while that's maybe not in the forefront of our minds as we're putting together our seasons, that is something that inevitably does happen. If you're telling stories, you're sharing ideas, and hopefully broadening minds and spirits in the process.
0: Not so much the name the Lyceum, but are there other small villages, small towns around the country which have theaters of your stature?
1: Now see I thought I thought you were asking me a much more difficult theater history <laughs> question and I was completely unprepared to answer it.
0: It's a good answer, though. It's interesting.
1: <laughs> <laughs> are there small towns with theaters in them? Yes. Uh, are any of them as small as Arrow Rock? None that I know of, and certainly none with organizations that are evolved as the Lyceum is. It really is a very, very unique thing, and, and Missourians statewide should be proud that somehow in the state of Missouri, this has been cultivated. It really is a tremendous thing.
0: It really is. So, Quinn, you were on the show back in December talking about your annual production of A Christmas Carol. And at that time, I had you run through the 2022 shows. But as sometimes happens, I had too many words and too little time. And so I had to brutally bring down my editing scalpel and eliminate all references to 2022. And I promised to have you back so we could revisit the joys of the upcoming season. And this year, you are in an unusual situation of having the second half of last season coming right up. And then without time to take a breath, you launch into the 2022 season. How are you all holding up?
1: Well, it's madness, of course. (laughs) Uh, We have in this calendar year of 2022, 10 different theatrical productions that will happen on our stage. And that, that does not include concerts and other special events that we have outside of those 10 productions, because we moved our what was once upon a time, our 2020 season to 2021, but we didn't open it until August. It pushed three of the productions uh, into uh, March and April, and we've never done shows in March or April. So this is uncharted ground, but we are, uh, we're we're excited to do it. It's interesting that the shows that landed in the early part of the year, both of them really are uh, were a part of the 2020 season because we wanted to to really celebrate the Lyceum's 60th anniversary season. And uh, one of them was in the very first Lyceum season in 1961. And the other one really speaks to where the theater is located in one of America's smallest and most charming towns. So those two productions, and I don't need to be, I guess, that obtuse about it, Our Town being the show that speaks to the magic of small-town life, and Charlie's Aunt, the great farce that was uh, in the 1961 season, those were reflective of our history. And then following them, we have Elvis the Musical, which will be the U.S. professional premiere of this new production. So we have throwbacks and a look forward all in those three shows.
0: And so then your 2022 season starts on June the 2nd. So most of March and a little bit at beginning of April, you've got the end of 2021. Then on June the 2nd, you know, two months later, you commence with 2022. So tell us what you have scheduled for 2022 proper, like the real season
1: we looked for a subscription package that was entirely made up of Lyceum premieres. So the six shows uh, before we reach a Christmas Carol are all new to the Lyceum stage. Several of them are shows that we have been dreaming about doing for a while. Several are ones that audiences have been asking us to do for a while. And then we have uh, some new properties that are really exciting too. It's going to be a really, really exciting season. Uh, It's, it's a, Packed with music, packed with laughs, packed with mystery, packed with romance. I mean, it it really has a little bit of everything and, and a lot of things that maybe our audience hasn't seen.
0: So run through the season for us.
1: All right. Well, we're going to open on June 2nd with the stage adaptation of the DreamWorks animated film Shrek about an unlikely hero, a giant green ogre, who is uh, charged with initially trying to figure out a way to get all of the fairy tale characters that have been displaced out of his swamp and back into their homes uh, just because he doesn't want anyone around. (laughs) It's incredibly funny. It's incredibly heartwarming and charming. It's flatulent, but it's charming. <laughs> now, that's the best way I know to say that. Um, everything that makes that movie work so well. The approach to the fairy tale characters is far from saccharine. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Irreverent. Irreverent, yeah. I mean, it it really is a very irreverent take on very familiar stories and with terrific music as well. One of the best songs in the whole thing is Let Your Freak Flag Fly. And so the story actually encourages a great deal of uh, independence and and embracing your identity. And so I, I just think it's a terrific story for audiences of all kinds. And then after that, we have, uh, I guess I don't need to say the Lyceum premiere before I say every single thing. Let's just <laughs> understand it, yeah. that they're all Lyceum <laughs> premieres, right? We have been trying for years to get the rights to Jersey Boys, the story of Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons. And uh, due to touring schedules and things like that, we've never been able to lock it in. But this year we finally did. And this is, I I would say, the crown jewel in jukebox musicals, uh, following these four guys from Jersey and all of those great songs. uh, Big Girls Don't Cry, Can't Take My Eyes Off of You, uh, My Eyes Adored You. The the list goes on and on and on. It is a high-energy, high-impact rock show with all of that great music from the 60s that the Four Seasons made so famous. And we thought it would be interesting if we have the Jersey Boys, to follow that on July 14th with Dreamgirls. This is a similar time period, actually. Dreamgirls is a largely fictionalized version of uh, the story of Diana Ross and the Supremes. It isn't the story of Diana Ross and the Supremes, but it is very similar to it. And I I will tell you, in my top five musical list, uh, we can have a whole show about what those top five are and why, (laughs) but Dreamgirls is one of the five. It is brilliantly put together. The show is almost entirely sung through with incredibly powerful music, and it offers the opportunity to showcase terrific talent among the dreams. And we're in the process of auditioning right now, uh, so I I can't tell you any more details except to say that it is going to be a breathtaking experience. It's just going to be dynamite. And then things continue. If 2022 does anything, it keeps continuing. (laughs) On August 12th, we are excited to open uh, the Missouri professional premiere of the new stage adaptation of the 1980... Three, 1985, I'm not sure, early 80s film Clue, of course, based on the board game. So the film uh, famously starred Tim Curry, Martin Mull, madeline Kahn, Leslie Ann Warren, Eileen Brennan. It's just a great cast. There have been previous stage adaptations of the board game, but this is the first stage adaptation of the movie based on the board game. Uh, it really plays like a traditional farce. There is murder, there is mystery. But there are tremendous laughs, and I think the the playwrights have really done a terrific job of distilling all of those necessary things. And it presents this exciting opportunity to put an entire mansion on stage because, as we all know from the board game Clue, you know it was the wrench, it was the candlestick, it was the knife, it was the <laughs> lead pipe and they were in the billiard room they were in the hall they were in the conservatory they were in the study all of those rooms have to appear on stage as well uh, so it's a it's a great challenge for our resident scenic designer Ryan Zerngable who is already working his magic to create that environment then after that we have uh, the uh, we have Ken Ludwig's I almost said the Lyceum premiere again I'm just so programmed to do it <laughs> we have Ken Ludwig Sherwood the adventures of Robin Hood Ken Ludwig is Probably the primary American farceur, if not the only one, who has adapted all kinds of existing properties, um, but is maybe most known for Lend Me a Tenor, a comedy of tenors. He brings a great comic sensibility to everything he does. But The Adventures of Robin Hood, of course, is distilling all of those great legends into that work as well. And I'm particularly excited about Sherwood because it will, as you would expect, feature a lot of on-stage...
0: Uh, Men in Tights? There, there,
1: there's that, but there's also <laughs> the great fight choreography. I mean, you have to have arrows oh, flying yes. across the stage and <laughs> quarterstaffs clanking against each other. It's just going to be really, really exciting. Now, we, we have, through all of those shows, uh, not really anything that necessarily appeals to the classic musical theater lover. And we thought, what better way to give them what they want than a whole collection of Rodgers and Hammerstein's greatest music in a grand night for singing. Just about every Rodgers and Hammerstein song you can ever think of appears in this very stylish musical review. It it is really, uh, the the arrangements are unbelievably great. And uh, we're already working to line up some fabulous singers to bring that music to life. So that's the subscription package. And then after that, it's a Christmas carol. (laughs)
0: Well, back in the before times, you would spend these winter months going to New York and auditioning for all the summer season. So how is that working now that A, we're still mid-pandemic and B, you are busy producing shows?
1: Well, the pandemic has taught us one thing, and that is that technology, though exasperating at times, can be our friend. So the entire process of casting our shows for the 2022 season is virtual so we have been reviewing uh, videos submitted by actors and uh, all of that can happen from the comfort of your own home and has to because i i think over the weekend i looked at over oh about 1300 video submissions and there are many more to come we haven't even moved into the callback phase so that'll be happening soon too so yeah it, it's it's an interesting thing because so much of the casting process for me is not only identifying the skills of the the actor auditioning, but also getting a sense of their personality. Rock, as we mentioned before, is a tiny place. And we want to make sure that the tiny place is populated with lots of wonderful people. And uh, we have figured out a way to have actual conversations, not just watching recorded videos uh, with the actors that are in consideration, just to make sure that they really fit within the Lyceum culture. So it, it is unlike anything we've ever done before. I don't know if it's something we'll ever do again. It's hard to say, but we at least have the ability to do it. 20 years ago, we couldn't have done that.
0: But you don't get to go to New York, so that's a bit of a downer.
1: I lived there. Uh, it's <laughs> fine.
0: Um, you checked that box already.
1: Well, it's, it's, a, it's a funny thing. When I first moved here, in I guess officially in 2005, I was so bothered by how quiet it was here. When I would sleep at night, I would have the TV on in the bedroom and a radio in the bathroom. It was the only way I could fall asleep because I needed the constant noise. Now I go to New York and I just can't get out of there quick enough. I need to get back to my little house (laughs) out in the middle of nowhere. The, The quiet has become very comforting to me.
0: Well, Rocks Lyceum Theatre kicks off the second half of its 2021 season on March 2nd with Thornton Wilder's Our Town and begins its 2022 season on June the 2nd with Shrek the Musical. You can read more about all their shows on the website at lyceumtheatre.org. And Quinn, let's catch up again later in the spring and maybe we could even get Shrek on the show.
1: That would be fantastic. And after you cut out half of this interview... Uh, because you'll have to for time. Uh, You can have me back anytime. It's always a thrill.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much, Quinn.
1: You're so kind to do it. Thank you.
0: There are times when my engineer husband is telling me about some aspect of solar panel installation or the intricacies of why his tube amp might not be working. And all I really hear are, as we call them, mouth sounds. Mostly, he makes these mouth sounds without any expectation that it will lead to a meaningful discourse. He's just communicating with his vicinity, one that I am physically in but mentally checked out of. And in an age where the ether seems frenzied with digital mouth sounds, everyone yelling over everyone else, Eugene Ionesco's 1950 absurdist play, The Bald Soprano, seems more relevant than ever. Some people see the play as a commentary on the futility of meaningful communication, but Ionesco said he wrote it as a parody of human behaviour and therefore a parody of theatre too. The Bald Soprano was Ionesco's first play and had been inspired, he said, by his attempts to learn English by reciting the pointless sentences of obvious truths that grammar books like to throw at language learners, like there are seven days in a week and that the ceiling is above, the floor is below. The play is in one act and is a continuous stream of meaningless non-sequitur banter between six people. Ionesco referred to it as a completely unserious anti-play. And it is this anti-play that will be performed at Stevens College Warehouse Theatre this weekend, directed by my next guest, Assistant Professor of Theatre, Brett Olson. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts, Brett. Hi, thanks for having me. So, for people who go to the theatre to see characters develop or the traditional story arc of incident, dilemma, climax, denouement, then the Ball Soprano is probably not a play they are going to leave feeling fulfilled by. When someone asks you what the play is about, what do you say?
2: Well, I would say it's sort of about everything and nothing. Given that it's an anti-play, um, it does still have anti-sort of objectives and anti-climax. Uh, there are climactic moments when you watch it. The language doesn't seem to matter as much as the fact that the characters are still trying to communicate with each other. It's written in sort of a series of non sequiturs. The play ultimately sort of breaks down with these truisms and they're, you know, shouting at each other. But it's quite funny because. You can tell that they so desperately want to connect with one another, but the words that are coming out of their mouth just don't make any sense.
0: Tell me what you love about this play.
2: Oh, I love that it feels a bit like mental floss.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a very good description.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, as, as a comedy, it's quite compelling because if you just, as an audience member, go into it feeling like, I don't need to solve anything about the world of the play that I'm watching. I just need to be sort of entertained by the antics. It can be really relieving. You know, if you think too hard about what they're trying to say to each other, it gets a little confusing, but if you let go that we're all sort of in this absurd world together, it's really very funny.
0: In as much as there is any plots, or maybe I should say a sequence of events, tell us about that sequence.
2: Yeah, it's actually not all that foreign. It's essentially um, two couples having a dinner party. The play begins with the Smiths discussing their lives, and then the Martins join them, and a dinner party ensues. And it has a lot of the similar trappings that you might find in like a sitcom. Oh, Our couple friend came over, and now we're having this awkward conversation because we don't know what to talk about and then more people come the fire chief comes and there's a maid and some of the situations are really familiar what is absurd is how they go through the situations so there is a sort of a discernible plot or a discernible sequence of events it just isn't fulfilling in the same way that a uh, traditional play would be it sort of frustrates you until you laugh
0: (laughs) The play was originally called English Made Easy. How did it end up being titled The Bald Soprano? As there is no soprano in the play, either with hair or without.
2: It's a it's a funny <laughs> little little moment and is quite appropriate for the script. So the actor, originally the actor who was playing um the Fire Chief, the line was supposed to be the blonde soprano. Um, the fire chief has a, an entire monologue where, where they just list every person they've ever met. And in an effort to tell a story, like when someone tells you a story and they give you all this background information and you're like, could you just get to the plot? <sighs> so the fire chief does this forever uh, and actually talks about a person who is blonde, a blonde school teacher, and then missed up the line in performance and said the bald soprano instead of the blonde soprano. And it's meant to sort of be a callback to that monologue, perhaps, but it also might not be a callback to anything, you know, because there's so many non-sequiturs. So the irony of the line is that the fire chief, the actor, messed up the line, but it actually doesn't matter at all what the what the line was. The lines don't matter.
0: And it ends up being the title of the play. Yep. It is a play which history has categorized as Theatre of the Absurd, like Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot, that Ionesco preferred the title Theatre of Derision. Give us a little potted history of Theatre of the Absurd and how this play, Fits into that history.
2: In a nutshell, theater of the absurd is sort of a a reaction to World War II and a world in which massive, large-scale conflict can be waged between nations, and the advent of nuclear weapons as well as sort of these opportunities, sadly, for for mass destruction. And so, theater of the absurd comes out of a place of saying, "Oh, wow, we are faced as for the first time as a human people with." the potential of great loss that no one, and, and maybe we don't even know when it's coming. And so without this idea of grand design available that would explain how we could have arrived at this as a people, theater of the absurd sort of says, well, uh, maybe there's no reason that that we can do these things. And so maybe we can all accept that there is no meaning to this play and just laugh about it.
0: Was this, the Bull soprano, was this play the beginning of that era or was it already a genre that existed when Ionesco wrote it?
2: It was sort of a, a philosophical genre, I, I suppose, when Ionesco wrote it. But it's essentially contemporary, as you said, of Beckett. But they, they all kind of coalesced in the late 1940s and in the early 1950s on stage.
0: Ionesco says of his characters in The Bald Soprano that they have no hunger, no conscious desires. They are bored stiff. But people who are unconsciously alienated don't even know they are bored. They feel it vaguely. I'm curious to what extent this play resonates with contemporary students and what conversations you've had around that component with this play.
2: Oh, absolutely. Well, we rehearsed for the first two weeks on Zoom in this virtual format, and that became a large part of how we discussed the play, how absurd the notion that we are trying to have these human connections via a screen on all of these little boxes across the country. And so I think that in that way, our students of today, having lived through this world-changing pandemic, actually identify with the play quite well. The absurdity in comparison to the world they knew before COVID compared to how we are processing the world now.
0: Yeah, it feels very, very timely to our our era of social media yelling and nobody really listening to anybody
2: else. Yes, yes.
0: (laughs) I always have to remember that whilst audience edification and enjoyment is one of the reasons you put on productions at Stevens, first and foremost, you are offering your students the chance to explore different theatrical forms. So, Pedagogically, what does the bald soprano add to your syllabus?
2: Well, it offers them an opportunity to sort of use all of their realistic acting technique in the most bizarre given circumstances that are available. We sort of focus on the definition of acting being the truthful behavior under imaginary circumstances. So we focus a lot on what is truthful behavior and then give them all these variety of imaginary circumstances. Um, a play where nothing matters and we're constantly speaking in non-sequiturs is the most diverse circumstances they could possibly find themselves in. Um, and trying to find a way to pull the character through that and live truthfully is has actually been a really compelling process, I would say, for the students and their acting journeys.
0: Is it a harder script to learn because of all the non-sequiturs and nonsense conversations than a traditional play?
2: Oh, yes. It's very fragmented. And there's we had to fight against the urge to make it realistic or to try to make it make sense. You know, what's the subtext of this line? Well, <laughs> there isn't any. <laughs> or it purely comes out of the moment. None of it is predetermined. You know, the characters don't have these, these sort of clear agendas. They're just totally reactive to sort of what absurd thing comes next.
0: One of the parts of the play that I really makes me smile is where they are swapping nonsense tales, as I always really liked kind of that kind of bizarre question of like, if a train driver has egg sandwiches on Tuesday, how fast is the train going? Kind of Edward Lear <laughs> nonsense poems. I think that's a, an awesome component of the play. What facet of the play do you find most appealing as a director?
2: Honestly, that's probably my favorite part as well. <laughs> I think it's hilarious, and we've we've sort of turned it into a little bit of a meta-theater moment where the um, cast members are the audience of the stories, of course, but they, the staging keeps on changing, so it's like, now we're in a proscenium theater, now we're in a thrust, now we're in the round. And so it's a play-within-a-play moment, mm. and that means that its absurdity has leveled up even more. It's probably the most heightened moment, um, and they're they're so engaged in telling this story into their character. It is like their King Lear. It's their Hamlet moment. It's huge. And to the audience we're so confused, but it's also <laughs> delightful because they're trying so hard, you know. <laughs>
0: Back in the late 1980s, Ionesco was interviewed, I think, by the New York Times on the eve of a talk he gave called Who Needs Theatre Anymore? And of course, his answer was everyone. Everyone needs theatre. And he's quoted as saying, theatre doesn't exist at the moment. It's bad everywhere. The public has changed. There have been so many disasters in the world and that people go to the theatre now to forget. If he was here today, how do you think Ionesco would perceive the theatre of the 20 teens?
2: I think that he would maybe say the same thing, but I I think that in light of COVID, in light of the many ways that the world has changed in the last 30 years, in the last three years, I think that there's now more than ever a desire for people to go to the theater to remember and not to forget. And I think the absurdity of The Bald Soprano invites people to be present with one another And to sort of collectively have a cathartic moment of how absurd reality has been lately and laugh about it.
0: I love how he ended that quote by saying how good theatre will have a renaissance because, he says, theatre is a pure necessity of man. In appearance, it seems unnecessary, but uselessness and superfluousness are things that are necessary. (laughs) (laughs) So I think he liked to talk in in twists as well. Right. (laughs) Stevens College's production of the Eugene Ionesco one-act play, The Bald Soprano, runs for just four performances. performances opening at the Warehouse Theatre this evening and closing with a 2pm matinee on Sunday. Brett Olson, always a delight chatting with you about theatre and thanks for making time to chat this evening. Thank you. It is exactly two years since the last theatre production took place at Talking Horse Productions. Back in February 2020, the Green Book Wine Club train trip was going to be the first in a season of plays which put female and female-identifying actors and playwrights centre stage. And then the world broke. The 2020 season got postponed till 2021, but as we all know, when it came to indoor events, the world stayed broken for most of last year too. And so it is only now, an unimaginable two years later, that actors will once again perform for a real live audience at Talking Horse Productions Black Box Theatre on St James Street in Columbia. The first show of this season opens on February the 18th and is a comedy titled The Smell of the Kill. It was the first play written by Michelle Lowe and had a very brief run on Broadway back in the early 2000s where it was mostly remembered for fermenting a rare public spat between its producers and its critics. Directing the Talking Horse production is Kara Carter and she is joining us this evening. Hello, Kara. It is lovely to have you on the show. Hello, it's lovely to be on. So The Smell of the Kill is about three disgruntled wives whose husbands, after a dinner party, accidentally lock themselves into a meat locker kept in the host couple's basement. And the women are faced with the decision of whether either to go to their husband's aid or willfully ignore their husband's life or death predicament. Cara, tell us about the three women we meet and their imperfect husbands.
3: So, first we have Nikki. Her home is where the party is being held. Her husband is Jay. He recently was indicted for embezzlement, and Nikki is an editor. She works on books, and she recently had a baby. So she's dealing with the idea of her husband going to prison for embezzlement, trying to figure out how to be a mother and keep her career at the same time. We have Molly, who is married to Danny. Molly has no children, and they seemingly have the perfect relationship. But we find out very quickly that Danny is very obsessive over Molly. He's very possessive of her, and she wants nothing more than to have a baby. And Danny would prefer nothing to interrupt what they have going. And then our last woman is Deborah. Deborah seems to be the perfect epitome of a housewife, she supports her husband, Marty, who is a realtor. She stayed home to raise their son, who is now in military school. And Marty seems to belittle Deborah at every turn, every chance he gets. But Deborah still seems to support him and not take it to heart. The thing I find most interesting about Deborah is she's, on the surface, one of the meanest women in the show out of the three. And I still think that she is one of the most vulnerable on the inside, which has been a joy to see that come to life on stage. All three of these women have really taken the roles that they've had and they've really embodied them in a way that I never thought possible.
0: So this is a play just with three women. We never actually meet the men. They are off stage. Is there even an actor there doing the men?
3: Yes, actually. So um, we have Terry Yates playing Marty backstage. My husband is actually playing Jay. And then Christopher Gould will be playing Danny backstage as well. So they are live and backstage.
0: <laughs> but we never get to see them. They're just in the wings the whole time. The idea being that they're playing golf in the room next door. <laughs> they don't come into the kitchen. Everything is set in, in this one scene in the kitchen. Who do you think the audience will have most sympathy for or feel most tenderly towards?
3: I think Molly at first, she seems to be the most innocent one and the most relatable one. Nikki and Molly, at first, for sure, because they seem to be the most down-to-earth. But I personally feel more sorry for Deborah, just based on the way that she is and just how she is as a person. It's so incredibly sad what she takes and what she puts up with from her husband. And then towards the end, we see some more development from her and I think, honestly, it's a very strange show for me because I first read it when I was in college and it's the only time I found myself like actually rooting for women to murder people. Makes <laughs> sense. But then at the end, it's like, oh, you actually have to examine why you feel the way you feel about these women and if they made the right decision regardless of either way it goes, you have to examine what their lives would be like on either side of the spectrum. And I think that's something that everyone can relate to because especially with the past two years, we've all had to make incredibly difficult choices where we don't know what's going to happen, regardless of whatever choice we make. We have to take a leap of faith. And that's the question that these women have. It's a much more life or death situation than what we've had to do the past two years. But I think especially after... This pandemic that we're still going through, people can relate to it a little bit more.
0: Although, hopefully, not the idea of murdering their husbands.
3: Yeah, hopefully not that. (laughs) This is the kind of
0: play where the 2022 version of me thinks, hmm, would this be a comedy that is acceptable if the roles were reversed? And it was the women who got trapped in, I don't know, say a flotation tank in the spa and the men left them to suffocate. And then the 2010 version of me thinks, oh, for goodness sake, it's just a comedy. It's, as one reviewer said, nice, mean fun. What
3: do you think? I find it interesting that you bring that up because they do bring that up in the play. They say, what would you do? What do you think Marty would do if the situation was reversed? Mm. And Deborah has to think about it and she has to think about what would actually happen if she was the one locked in the meat locker. Personally, I think based on the circumstances of their relationship, I think it's a tough call either way. I definitely don't think if, The men were the ones who were making the decision to kill their wives. I don't think it would be very well received, certainly, um, just based on the culture of misogyny that we've all grown up in and the culture of misogyny that's still prevalent. Um, Domestic violence, especially with the pandemic, was something that we all have had to confront, especially in our country. Um, We have very high rates here. So the idea of men locking their wives in a meat freezer is very disturbing to me. But it's also very disturbing to hear about women locking their husbands in a meat freezer. So it kind of depends on the situation that you put your characters in, I believe.
0: It feels like a play which is more of a girls' night out play than a date night show. There are not a lot of redeeming features assigned to any of the men who we, say, as I said, we never see them, but we hear them off stage and they're clearly kind of selfish and self-absorbed and childish. But it is certainly a one-sided trial the play offers up. We hear the women's point of view only. Is there something here for male audiences?
3: I think there is. Um, I think seeing what it's like on the other side of the spectrum is always something that is appreciated and I think is needed. I think seeing what it's like from the other side is a really important thing because it teaches you empathy and it gives you a different perspective. Um, That's almost like saying, oh, well, is there anything for women watching pro wrestling or watching something that's typically male-dominated? I think getting other perspectives and seeing things from a different point of view offers a completely different piece of information that you might not ever have seen. So the idea that just because it's all about these three women... There isn't 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 anything really redeeming about their husbands that they present. Um, I think it's still a good bit of fun. It's a very funny show. And there's quite a few moments that are actually quite crass with its humor that I really appreciate having in there because it breaks up some of that seriousness that's thrown in there.
0: Talk to me about the casting. You have Mary Shaw, who is well-known on Columbia Theatre Stages, Lauren Peck, who I believe graduated from Stevens Theatre Department, and Brandy Sperling, who I'm sure I've seen her in something, but I'm not quite sure what. Tell me why you chose these three actors for the roles.
3: So um, when we were doing auditions, we had two nights, and we had a great amount of people come out. I was very impressed with all the talent we saw on stage when we did our auditions. For me personally, when I saw those three get together, it was as if something clicked. They had the chemistry I was looking for. Brandy, I gave her one note after she read, and I said, You can be meaner. And she took that note and went running with it, <laughs> which is exactly what I wanted for Deborah. For Nikki, which I cast Mary, she gave me the variety of feelings I saw. Where with a character written the way Nikki is written, it's very easy just to kind of sit in cynicism and let that have that one note. Whereas Mary let herself be vulnerable in the scenes we chose to have auditions for. She um, let herself be vulnerable. She had that variety. And Lauren, she really embraced who Molly is, which Molly is a lovable airhead, but also Molly has this sweetness and this innocence about her And the sincerity that I was looking for for Molly because I feel like Molly's one of the only people in the show who is sincere about her feelings and is completely open about what she has. And the thing was with Lauren, she just has such an amazing energy on stage. She, like, she's never phoning it in, which I love. Like, we did Zoom rehearsals all week last week due to the blizzard, and she was completely 100% into it. And that's the way they all are. They're so incredibly dedicated. And I am i couldn't be happier with the cast we've selected.
0: Did they, when they came to audition, did they read for the roles they ended up getting? Or did you switch people around?
3: So originally, we switched people around. For the first readings, I asked people who they would like to read for. And Brandy said she would like to read for Deborah. And so after that first time, I said, your energy's right, could be meaner. And she nailed it. And <laughs> after that, I had to read for Molly and Nikki, but it never felt as right as she did for Deborah. First person I had Lauren read for was Molly, and then the first person I had Mary read for was Molly. But once I switched her to Nikki, it it clicked. So having those three on stage as those three characters just it it was m- like magic happening on stage, and it's it's a director's dream to see that happen during an audition process.
0: What kind of director are you? What's your philosophy on directing?
3: My philosophy on directing, I tend to be a very cooperative director. I like to involve everyone in the process. Um, I like to ask questions of my actors and get their insight on what they're thinking of the character. So that way we can connect and make our visions meet. Because in the end, they are the ones playing that character on stage. I have a vision and it is my job to make sure that actors can see where my vision is coming from. So that way they can make it happen. Because in the end, I'm not going to be the one on stage acting it out. They are. So I wanted to select actors who are open to a collaborative process, who are cooperative and willing to work and take direction and make it happen, have that teamwork ethic of making something together.
0: The Smell of the Kill is a very fast-paced, back-and-forth dialogue play. No one has to learn a long monologue. There is no internal thought meandering. It's pretty rapid fire interplay between the characters. And what I'm always curious about is how actors recover from a scene partner or themselves missing or forgetting a line. As a director, what advice do you give your actors?
3: So the big thing I've given my actors, um, we're actually doing our first off book rehearsals this week. Um, The thing I have given my actors is I advise them to be there for each other. If they miss a line, Know what the cue line is. And if they miss that line, you need to be there for them. We are a team. Having your, partner, your scene partners back is incredibly important on stage. Having been in a situation as an actor where I had a scene partner back me up when I forgot a line on stage, that is so incredibly helpful. And it helps me get back on track.
0: That is honestly one of the reasons why I feel like I would never go and try and audition for a play because I just wouldn't trust my own memory. <laughs> I would be able
3: to remember <laughs>
0: everything final question what is your favorite moment in the play
3: my favorite moment in the play oh there's so many um I think I really enjoy the moments that they have when it's one-on-one or the quiet intimate moments where you can see their vulnerability peeking through because my thing is everybody has secrets everybody has things that they want to hide and someone letting another person into themselves to reveal those secrets is such an incredibly beautiful moment because we as humans are very guarded and we tend not to let our walls down. So whenever we see someone letting their walls down, I think that's just incredibly beautiful.
0: Well, The Smell of the Kill, a comedy by Michelle Lowe, opens at Talking Horse Productions on Friday, February the 18th and runs for two weekends, including two Sunday matinee performances. You can find out more at TalkingHorseProductions.org and Cara Carter. Thanks for telling us about the show. Thank you. For many artists, their work is not about providing us with visual or musical entertainment. It's about telling their truth through the medium of art, something that is vital or self-evident to them that they might struggle to put into words, but which they can express best through art or music or poetry or a combination thereof, like my next guest. Jeru Battle is an artist and performance poet who arrived in Columbia from St. Louis three years ago, not to come to school here, but simply, as he puts it, to find his own lane. His work is an expression of his vision of the world, imbued with his own sense of spirituality and universal energies. And next week, he will launch his first self-published children's book called The Indigenous Goat which he hopes will help other young people who, like Jeru, feel like they see the world differently than those around them and are searching for the bravery to forge their own path and speak their own truth. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Jeru.
4: Hey, how you doing? Thank you, Diane, for having me.
0: So The Indigenous Goat is a very short book aimed at young readers, which you both wrote and illustrated. Tell us about The Indigenous Goat, who we meet in your book.
4: This book is about a goat who came up, who was different, born different, and he spoke different. He communicated different. He was different. He was original. And he... He stood out to his his community, he stood out to his village because he was different, and they didn't like that, and he didn't care. <laughs> um, he kept going, he kept striving, and from then on, he was crowned, and he became who he could be. He became what it was the real meaning of becoming the GOAT. That's what this book is about.
0: And the GOAT is you
4: yeah <laughs> we made it. We finally made it, and we were crowned because we didn't we didn't let anyone belittle the fact that we were different, and you're different. We all are different, so the gist of this book is to basically embrace who you are as a person and don't let anyone tell you tell you different
0: and he stands out because of the colors because he changes color right depending on how he feels tell me how that relates to you
4: so as being an artist that's one of my biggest things that I use this art for I use my art to express my emotions express how I feel like giving people a different aspect of me because I am a different caliber artist and I say that because I come from a place where I saw a lot of things growing up. I witnessed a lot of things. And so just me being able to see what I saw and overcome what I seen, is it's like everything is coming from the inside. So it's like I'm changing different forms each and every day as I create.
0: So you've been an artist for several years, but tell me why you decided to write this book.
4: Well, this book was inspired by a painting that I did called Survival of the Black Sheep. And through this piece, I gave people like the inside of me, the eternal me. Um, And with the book, I wanted to highlight this painting, highlight that, like you said in the beginning, how I am spiritual. I, I do practice spirituality. The painting, it was to help me help other people understand who I was as an artist, not just, you know, uh, a guy with dreadlocks. I wanted to give them rule. I wanted to give them uh, an insight on me. And also this book was created to help the youth. Like that's one of my biggest missions, biggest goals, because they are the future. They are the wave of the future. And without showing them any guidance without giving them guidelines or anything to follow. This book was created to to help inspire and tap into the younger generation and let them know that being different is something that we should embrace.
0: How do you think your outlook as a child might have been different if you had had this book to read? Because you said the other day to me that there's a huge gap. You feel like there's a real need for a book like this that explores the idea of thinking differently and being different. How do you think your childhood might have been different if if this book had been there to inspire you?
4: (laughs) Well, I'll most definitely say, if I knew what I knew now, back then, I would most definitely, probably nine times out of 10, <laughs> I wouldn't live in um, the U.S. Uh, I probably would have been long gone somewhere. Long When I say long gone, far gone, I mean, I would have been tapped into my indigenous, you know, where I'm from, where, I mean, I am native to this land, so this is like a stone for me, but just me knowing where I come from, a little bit about My background and my history, only thing would have changed would be I would probably be a genius or a scientist somewhere in another region figuring out how to continue to build. I would be super more educated. Um, I would probably know a little bit more and and I would spread a little bit more. (laughs) Um, I would probably be way ahead of my time.
0: Well, tell me a little bit about your childhood in St. Louis. Your older brother is also an artist in St. Louis. But as we know, art is rarely prioritized in schools, especially those in low-income neighborhoods. What kind of access to art did you have as a
4: child? I really didn't have a lot. Um, All I had was imagination, a neighborhood, and we had a couple of neighborhood centers we had the Sharif Center. We had the Dream Center. And I never really was a big person on just like, branching out. When I was a kid growing up, I always were was home fed under my family, under my mom. And I didn't really have too many friends because, like I said, I was always the outcast. I was always just, like, being me. You know, nowadays they call it uh, being weird, but, hey, uh, everybody is different. So I was always different. And people noticed it. But long story short, I really didn't have much as a kid growing up. All I had was a notebook, some imaginations. I really loved anime growing up. So I always tapped into, like, just looking at different images, different pictures. And from then, I used to be in my own world. Like, I used to grab my notebook after school, go downstairs in my room, turn on some cartoons and boom, I'm I'm sketching. I'm staying up all night just sketching, just doodling just my thoughts and trying to release everything that I just basically embraced outside of where I lived there. Like I, growing up, it was a rough neighborhood. We didn't have a lot of resources. So, you know, me just having that time and that blank piece of paper right there in front of me, it just gave me a sense to, you know, get away, and create my own world, create my own lane. (laughs) Back to like what you were saying earlier, where I'm at now, uh, Columbia, I'm trying to do the same thing. It hasn't stopped (laughs) from then to now.
0: How do you feel moving to Columbia has helped you develop as an artist?
4: I'll most definitely say Columbia has helped me to reach new heights, Uh, get out my comfort zone, get outside the box, meet people that I never probably would have reached out to. It made me stronger. It made me stronger. It made me, like I said, it helped me to get out of my comfort zone. It even gave me a sense of urgency to leap with faith and not be feared of anything that may get in my way. It helped me build a business. It helped me to uh, really take that initiative to say, I'm going to create this, create a wave, which are my two businesses that I now own. And so I'm taking, I'm taking pride in, like, my actual craft now and just also building my own network and my own legacy. Like, right now, I'm, I'm about to be an author of a book. I would have probably been just in St. Louis, you know, still trying to figure out what it is that I want to do because, like you said, we mentioned earlier, my brother, you know, I love him dearly, you know, but I just had to get from under his wing and, and come fly and figure out, How to soar on my own. So, Columbia helped me to reach a lot of goals that I never would have thought that I would have tapped into.
0: Well, the release party for your book, The Indigenous Goat, will take place at the Columbia Art League on February the 18th. But I know you want this to be about more than just the book. And tell me a little bit about your
4: flower awards. Yay. So, this is tremendous. I'm super excited about it. The name of this ceremony as well as this book release, the name of the ceremony is called the GOAT Award, <laughs> the GOAT Award Ceremony. And at this ceremony, we're trying to put on for the local communities, the urban communities that's not just in Colombia, but all over. Um, it's people who are out here doing and creating these lanes and, and doing what they love to do. And people in the local community these days, if they see you doing something, They'll root for you, but they're not going to really root for you until they see that, yeah, you getting acknowledged or, oh, you, you got money or somebody big uh, noticing you or, you know, you're doing something super extravagant. But with this event, we want to nip that in the bud. We want to basically give people their flowers while they're here. So at this event, we will be giving away four awards to four local people in the Columbia community and, giving them their flowers while they're here, letting them know, like, we see what you're doing.
0: Well, Jeru Battles' debut children's book, The Indigenous Goat, will be launched at the Columbia Art League on Friday, February the 18th from 6 to 8 p.m., where he'll also be giving out his four flower awards. There is no invitation list. Everyone is welcome. And you can see more of Jeru's work on Instagram at r u i n u i n c. And his spoken word work you can see or listen to on SoundCloud by searching for Rasta Ru R A S T A R U. Yeah. Jeru, thank you so much for taking time to chat today.
4: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guest this evening, producing artistic director at the Lyceum Theatre, Quinn Gresham, Assistant Professor of Theatre at Stevens College, Brett Olson, Talking Horse Productions Director, Cara Carter, and artist Jeru Battle. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Bandcamp and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. finally thank you so much for listening i'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain until then stay arty missouri